there are so many moving parts to a startup. It can be tempting to overlook the confusing legal aspects. That's right. And many of us don't even understand the basics of concepts like copyrights or patents or trademarks. But confusion is really no excuse. You can't sweep it under the rug. When it comes to intellectual property, be prepared. If you have questions about intellectual property law, stay tuned. In this episode of Biz 503, we break down copyrights, patents, and trademarks and why your business might need them. I'm Leslie Hildula, business advisor and adjunct faculty at Portland Community College's Small Business Development Center. Joining me as co-host is Andy Gigrich, digital managing editor at the Portland Business Journal. So, Andy, you've been on the Portland scene for a while, haven't you? Uh, Yeah, it's like frighteningly long. Um, I've been doing this for a couple of decades. I uh, moved out here from Washington, D.C. in about 1998 and started up at the Business Journal, worked at the Portland Tribune for a while. I've been back at the Business Journal for 14 years. So, I mean, along the way, I've covered law, I think, in three different periods. I was the law reporter. So I met a lot of people in the industry and I still don't know what all of you guys do. I'm pointing to the the attorneys in the room here. But anyway, it's been a good run and I like talking with lawyers and I love covering business journalism. Well, let's talk about these lawyers. Joining us now as we define the basics of intellectual property law, specialists in the field are Susan Ford, principal attorney at Resnova Law. Hi, Susan. Hi. And Chris Erickson, attorney at Tonkin Torp. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So this is going to be a really good discussion, I think. Right now, I, a lot of people don't know exactly what intellectual property is per se. So why don't you guys go ahead and just start with the very basics. Act like you're talking to an eight-year-old and tell them what, what it is you do and, and why you do it. Sure. I think we could probably divide up the different types. I'll go ahead and take patents and trademarks. And if it's okay with you, Chris, um, copyrights and trade secrets, you can have those. Absolutely. Okay. So just generally, patents um, cover inventions, including business methods, software, designs, methods of manufacture, and even plants. Uh, Trademarks, by contrast, cover brands. So that includes business names, logos, product names, and the look and feel of a place or a thing. And then uh, copyrights are uh, expressions, original expressions of content, creative expressions that are embodied in a work. Um, And Mm -hmm. common examples of copyrights are songs, paintings, books, creative expressions that are original in nature. Susan mentioned trade secrets. Trade secrets are essentially things you keep secret that are important to the company and that are valuable because they are secret. And those are often protected through non-disclosure agreements and and just through internal controls at the company. Mm-hmm. And, and like the balance of your work then is what? I mean, do you spend a lot of your time tracking down patents or? <laughs> no, I think the primary role that I try to play with clients is have a conversation with them about their business, about what they do, about what they create, about how they promote themselves, and then try to identify through those conversations what types of intellectual property they might have, whether it's you know branding, elements and logos, uh, whether it's creative content, including software or other materials, um, or whether it's patentable inventions that might be eligible for patent protection. And then, and then talking and walking them through the, the ways that you might protect those, uh, that intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And Susan, did you mention plants, P-L-A-N-T-S? Yes. Uh, t- plants, talk about like that what grow in the ground. Wow. Well, um, I mean, there are a lot of patents for seeds, for example, because 
the agricultural industry is enormously uh, inventive and creative. So that's what mm. I meant by plants. Okay, so literal <laughs> plants. Yeah. <laughs> so why do these protections exist? These protections really are all about um, protecting and maintaining some really key aspects and assets of businesses. Just think about the kind of money that's invested in a trademark over time, for example, and how important those trademarks become to consumers. Oftentimes, we don't even realize the association we're making between maybe a couple colors together or a design, but just think about just do it and the swoosh, how if we were just arriving in this world, that wouldn't seem to connote anything to us. But because of all the money that Nike has put into those marks, they're extremely valuable. Well, speaking of Nike, is this really a big business issue or does it also relate to a small business person who's just starting out? I think it relates to any company. I mean, I think intellectual property encourages companies, big and small, to create things, to develop, for lack of a better term, intellectual property in their company and the reward you get for developing that is protection, is the comfort and knowledge in the law that someone can't come along and simply copy uh, what you've done and what you've invested hard work and lots of money in developing. And so that especially applies to small companies who may just be starting out and who are all about creative energy, uh, you know, brain power and, and hard work and the things that they've developed early on in early stages, they would have no way of growing in to be a big company if they didn't have these protections in place. And also I just interject, in addition to having protections for their IP, small businesses, startups come to realize as they talk to investors that having a registered patent can go a long ways towards convincing the investors to invest. Likewise, having registered trademarks or if they're a creative entity, copyrights shows foresight and an asset that's already on the books. Mm -hmm. what, what are some of those other things they can show investors that prove that they're legitimate business? I mean, are there things like, you know, other types of identifications that we might not think about? Well, any sign from a startup company that they have taken steps to protect things that they've created whether it's through registering your name as either a trademark or an assumed business name, whether it's uh, registering copyright, whether it's software or otherwise, or whether it's simply um, the exercise of having the people who invented the stuff sign documents that say the company owns it. I think that's one of the most important things that a company, especially a, a small company, can do to establish ownership in the company itself of all of this intellectual property that's being created. What, what about like anecdotal things like maybe like recordings or pictures and things like that? Do those play any any role in proving well, that, that someone had it first? And certainly first creation is an important aspect of intellectual property law and establishing priority of, of use or ownership, both in the realm of in, in all intellectual property. For example, with trademark protection in the United States is established by first use. So having those examples of when you first started using something, you know, mm -hmm. um, taking a picture of, of an advertisement in a magazine or mm -hmm. keeping, keeping that so that if there ever is a fight that you can prove when you first started owning it. Mm -hmm. I think all of that, having that in your files is really important. Yeah, and I was just going to add, um, putting into place appropriate non-disclosure agreements is something that investors are going to look for too. They don't want someone running off with a secret sauce before they even have a chance to invest in the company. So those are the sorts of things that can be in your sort of the package you present to your angel investor or your venture capital fund. 
along with, of course, your financials and your marketing plan and your business plan. So do these protections expire? They do. Well, no, not all of them. Trademarks, as long as you continue to renew your trademark, it won't expire. Trade secrets, as long as you keep the secret secret, it won't expire. Patents, however, have durations and you have a limited monopoly for 14 years under a design patent and 20 years under a utility patent. Copyrights also have durations, but they're much longer. They range from 70 to 100 years uh, after the death of the person that created the work. So who exactly then handles these matters? I mean, you're talking about like uh, who sort of oversees the paperwork like on your end. Is that you guys or like, like runs through the process, basically? Not, not the entire process. I know it takes yeah. years. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do handle the process. There are also patent agents that work with patent attorneys, for example, but everything else the attorneys can help with. And it oftentimes is easier, but certainly not required. You can file your own trademark. You can file your own copyright. I wouldn't advise filing your own patent. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, again, to differentiate between the underlying intellectual property itself and then the step of registering that intellectual property, um, you can have rights in a trademark that are unregistered rights that are still enforceable. You can have ownership of a copyright in software or other creative materials that you ultimately don't register with the copyright office. And those are still valuable assets to the company. So establishing ownership through agreements or otherwise is, is important. And often attorneys help with the drafting of those. The step of then registering that intellectual property with the patent and trademark office or the copyright office is often done with some assistance and oversight from the attorney. But, you know, paralegals are very valuable. Legal assistants are very valuable in working with those agencies. Yeah, and Chris makes a really good point. We're talking all about applications and registrations, but what he's talking about is common law rights. And as soon as you start using your your name, your logo out in commerce, uh, you have a trademark. And as soon as you reduce your creative idea, your picture, your podcast, whatever, to tangible form, um, and that includes a broad array of mediums, includes writing it down, it includes making a video. Once you've done that, you have a copyright. So those are just common law rights. It's good that he brought them up because they do exist. So this is design week and I work with a lot of clothing designers who also have their own store. So you have a store name, you have the name of your design, your line. What protection does that person need? I think starting off, you want to differentiate yourself in the market. And a lot of time that is through your name. You know, people are buying clothes from you that may have your label on them or may have a tag with your trademark on them. And they like your clothes. They're going to want to tell their friends about them. They're going to want to go back to that store. So um, protecting the name, the trademark, the label in a strong way will allow you to create value in that name and grow that brand so that people identify with it. Outside of trademark protection, I'm not sure there are some options of copyright protection with fashion. That's kind of a growing area of law that's not well established. But outside of that, there may be very little protection that you have. Some copyright protection, perhaps, in your website and your advertising materials. But um, for, for clothing and fashion, I think you know it's, it's really all about the brand. I'd say that most of the copyright related stories that we do are Nike and Adidas and now Under Armour and Columbia. So, I mean, that that's a good point. I mean, speaking of design week, how do you guys find your clients? Where do you go to find um, new business? Is there, are there like 
trademark conventions. <laughs> <or anything. laughs> there are trademark conventions, but lawyers tend to go to those, mm-hmm. um, which is one way to get clients. You know, I think more and more lawyers are using the internet to uh, put interesting and informational materials out there and how to develop a following, Facebook, Instagram, and, uh, you know, I, we certainly do that. And then programs like this are great because it allows us to kind of help educate the public that, you know, it might interest someone that needs help in these areas. Yeah. A lot of clients are through referrals, you know, doing good work for current clients and they spread the word and tell their friends. And I think that's one way to do it. I mean, it's, it's a just, chicken. Just like every problem, other kind of law. <laughs> sure. And what type of clients do you tend to have in your firms? Paying clients. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, any size of company. I, I, really, it's, um, you know, from small companies up to the largest companies, sometimes the smallest companies and the startups are the most interesting because you get to have these initial conversations about what they have and what they're trying to build. And if you can protect them and establish that protection at an early stage, um, it sets them up for success. It sets them up for investment. And, and I think that's some of the most exciting type of work. Larger clients are interesting, too, uh, because the stakes can tend to be a little bit higher. But at all levels, the issues tend to be the same. At Rest Nova, we really do try to focus on startups and small business and then you know hope to get them set up and grow with them. We end up at events run by Oregon Entrepreneurs Network, the Indus Entrepreneurs, Starvups, that kind of thing. And it's really fun. It's really great to see the energy in the room and to meet these people with these fabulous ideas and a lot of motivation to see them through. Mm-hmm. Do you find that a lot of your clients are coming to you because there's a legal issue or because they're trying to avoid a legal issue in the future? Are they coming to you in pain, in other words, or <laughs> to prevent it? Uh, it's more fun to work with the clients who are coming in on a proactive basis to start planning. But typically it's clients who come to us because there's a problem. And, and whether that's they have someone who wants to buy them or invest in them, and they've now discovered that they may not own the intellectual property that they claim to own, or they've received a, a cease and desist letter or a lawsuit regarding one of their products or properties, that tends to be more common. You know, it's more fun to help people on the front end when it's less painful. It is, um, I mean, working with startups can be a, a lot of fun. Has it gotten a lot more active in in recent years as our startup scene has developed in Portland? Yeah, it has. I feel I've been a lawyer in Portland for 20 years and uh, things are really hot right now. They have been for the last, I don't know, four or five years. And I just went to TEDx Portland last weekend. There was a piece of data given out. And I think what it was, was that 80% of Oregon companies have 10 or fewer employees. That's why we're doing the small business work, isn't it? Yeah. So thanks to Susan and Chris for helping us outline the basics of intellectual property law. Stay tuned. Coming up next, the how-tos of protecting your company after a short break. You're listening to Biz 503, the podcast for small businesses, startups, and anyone who wants to turn their idea into income. Biz 503 on PRP. Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Andy Giegrich, Digital Managing Editor at the Portland Business Journal, co-hosting with Leslie at PCC's Small Business Development Center. Today on Biz 503, we're learning why startups need to pay attention to intellectual property protection. That's that's a good deal. And in this segment, we're going to look at real-life examples of intellectual property law in action and when to protect your ideas with us. Again, is Chris Erickson from Tonkin Torp. Hey, Chris. Hello. And, and Lee Gill, who's an attorney at Imix Law Group. Lee, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. So what stage in a startup do they need to consider looking into patents, copyrights, or trademarks? The answer depends on the nature of the business. As Chris and Susan were discussing, some of your intellectual property exists the moment that you create it or the moment that you use it. So the protection then becomes the question as far as strategy goes. Other kinds of intellectual property like patents don't exist unless you take proactive steps to go and preserve your rights. In fact, if you have something that's patentable and you fail to patent it, that is, you don't take the step of going to the office and patenting it, then it becomes free and available for everybody to use. Thanks, Lee. Chris, you want to add to that? I would say um, startups should be thinking about these issues as soon as possible. It doesn't require having you know, large legal involvement either at an early stage, but just having um, early conversations about these issues about what your business is, about what you're going to be doing, about what you're going to be creating with an attorney can really empower that company to take the steps necessary themselves as they grow and then perhaps some check-in as needed as things continue to develop. Can you give me an example of how much I should budget? Because, you know, as a business advisor, I'm always telling startups to put together a business plan that includes the budget. What do they need to have to get started? What do they need to budget for their attorney fees? The attorney's fees, it's very challenging. In the long run, attorney's fees on most businesses will run 3 to 5% of your budget. But if you're just starting out, you're going to be having one-time costs in setting up your business, in getting your documents straight, and in doing things like patent protection, trademark protection, copyright registration. So realistically, I think you should probably have that conversation early with an attorney and don't be afraid to ask them. What is this going to cost me? Can I make a good business judgment about it? And to add to that, your legal fees are going to be a lot cheaper on the front end if you take care of these issues than on the back end when something goes wrong and you're having to defend a lawsuit or take other action. Mm -hmm. Both of you have used the term proactive, and I'm guessing that is that one of the bigger mistakes that people make at the beginning? They're just not aggressive enough and assertive enough in protecting what they have? Yeah, here's an example. You're a startup company. Let's say you've properly organized as an LLC and you've engaged one of your friends who's not an employee to develop this key piece of software for your for your mobile app that's the heart of your business. And you do it on a handshake and you pay him a fair value and and he goes away. And now you've got this product and you're marketing it, selling it. It's at the core of your company. The problem is the way copyright law works in the United States is the person who developed it is the author of that work. He's the owner of the copyright. If you as a company want to own that as a business asset, mm-hmm. you needed to have him assign that to you right away as part of that engagement in a written contract. Absent that, it may not be an asset of your company that you think it is. And so when you go to sell your company or get investors, they're going to find that out. And if a lot of time has passed between the development of that asset and when when this time occurs, it could be problematic to try to go get that signature or that assignment from the person who developed it. So being proactive and getting that documentation in place at the front end is really important. Right. And I have the same question for you, Lee, but just to get back to the handshake, seriously, have you actually seen there? Or is that just an example? Clients will say they've done it on a handshake, oh which, which usually means it's... <laughs> maybe an email, which is not always any more enforceable. Well, let me check out my assumption then too, that written agreement that you were talking about for the use of that product that was developed by somebody else. That's a fairly routine legal process, right? It's not necessarily expensive or complicated. No, no it can be a one page short form agreement that 
And it's not for use of the of the product. It's really assigning all of the intellectual property rights from the developer to the company. But it can be a very short form, simple agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee, what sort of common mistakes do you see that clients make? Well, I think one of the things that you have to do at the outset is plan for success. There's so many things that come along the road that you don't anticipate. And you know you have to be flexible and adaptable to that. But where we have seen with our clients that there's more work than they anticipated, there's more legal that needs to be done. It often goes back to, did you anticipate the kinds of success that you had? So I'll give you an example. I have a client that we worked with on their trademarks and they went and they filed their trademarks just like they should do, but they did it after they had set up their business and discovered that it was more in demand than they thought. They just had a local here in Portland storefront kind of business, but they were getting customers coming from out of state, out of country to come and see what they're doing. So when they go to get their trademark registered, they're really thinking nationally now. And there was a business in New York that by a matter of weeks had gotten to the trademark office first. And we had a lot of work to negotiate with them in order to get there. That's painful. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not that they did anything wrong. They just weren't anticipating that they could become a national company that they could be bigger than Portland. I had a client who got a cease and desist letter because she was naming her new store that she just put into a neighborhood, the same name as apparently an online store in Alaska. So tell us about those cease and desist letters. Yeah, And those are often the first time that somebody realizes they do in fact have a trademark, that they have been using their intellectual property in commerce and that they've created risk for themselves by doing it without having first stopped and asked, is this name something I can use? And they're fairly common, and they don't always mean what the letter says, but they always have to be taken seriously. And one of the things that I wanted to mention as we're thinking about how do you start to think about these legal topics are some of the resources that are available to small businesses for things like cease and desist letters, There are great resources in town like the Small Business Legal Clinic or the Oregon Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, which can help you when you receive one of these letters and go through the process specifically of how do I respond to this. If you're very concerned about money and you're hesitant to go to a practicing attorney with expertise like you guys have, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know the Small Business Legal Center, who my clients have worked with a lot as well. They have a good reputation, I think, in town. They also, I think, are doing some work around trademark now as well. And I think it's important not to take the letter literally, as Lee said. Uh, For example, in Lee's example of a Portland company using a name that's the same as a, a New York company using a name, even if it's for competing businesses, if both of those companies are operating locally in their own markets, even if the New York company has obtained a trademark registration in that name, That doesn't necessarily mean that New York company has the right to stop the Portland company from using the name for those services. So I think it's important, even when you receive a letter, uh, it may look bad. It may sound super aggressive, but, you know, having a short conversation with a lawyer who knows some of the intricacies can really help uh, put you at ease. And fess up. Have you guys ever sent a cease and desist letter yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And and does it feel... Better to send one than it does to feel worse, if that makes sense. <laughs> you, you know, the goal it, it, it seems like it'd be kind of fun to send it. <laughs> um, 
In some cases, yeah. I mean, the goal with a cease and desist letter is to obtain the result you want without having to spend a whole lot of money. If you can accomplish your goal, which is a lot of times getting the recipient to stop what they're doing. That's the real win. That's the win. Because if they don't, then you have to start talking with your client about real money involved in filing a lawsuit. Those conversations become a lot more difficult. I think we have a pretty well-known local example that maybe we can all talk about because we can use information that was in the paper without you guys worrying about disclosing information about your clients. And that's what happened to Olympic provisions. Anybody want to tackle that for our (laughs) listeners? Well, I'll touch on it briefly, but I think it stems from a very kind of strange and obscure (laughs) part of the federal trademark statutes that give pretty monopolistic trademark protection to the U.S. Olympic Committee for almost all things Olympic and related to the Olympics. And so when Olympic provisions... We're all kind of biting our tongue here. It's like, (laughs) oh, come on. Yeah. The the Red Cross, I believe, has similar protections. So when Olympic provisions named themselves as such, they ultimately received a cease and desist letter. And although the U.S. Olympic Committee is probably not in the business of selling sausages and salamis, (laughs) um, this kind of blanket coverage that they've received from the statute allowed them to come in and enforce the name change. It's certainly an unusual one because of, at least from the legal side, this is not the normal, hey, I registered it on the register and you can go check it. And then if it's all clear, you can go forward. But it is a it is a lesson to say, all right, how did they come to the name Olympic? How did they make decisions regarding their branding and developing the goodwill behind their business? They were in the Olympic Mills building and it was a good idea because, hey, we're here. But it was also maybe an opportunity to stop and think and say, can we really be distinctive if we do this? Can we really avoid others and come up with a brand that just has lasting value? Well, it was interesting to me because the Olympic Peninsula, right? The Olympic Mountains, these are natural features of where we live. And that they had to change their name to Olympia when they were calling upon a natural feature struck me as an Oregonian, not quite fair. So is there other takeaways for other small business owners when they're thinking about naming their business after some natural feature of the Northwest? Yeah, actually that raises another issue, which is, you know, some trademarks are stronger than others and some trademarks are, are given stronger protections than others. Trademarks that are simply names of geographic areas or locations are given much less protection than more unique and fanciful words. Hmm. So for example, if I created a product and called it, you know, Mount Hood shoes, Hmm. because it's a geographic location and because I am selling those shoes generally in that geographic location, that trademark would be deemed to be merely descriptive of the geographic location from where I'm from. Um, so as as a client who is thinking about that, I think those are important things to think about. You may um, not run into an infringement issue. You may be able to use that trademark forever. It just may not have much value to your business and you may have a difficult time enforcing it. Mm-hmm. And is there, I guess we're looking for like other examples. I mean, Olympic provisions made a pretty good save with the Olympia. I, I think that kind of works. But what are some other examples of when they may not need to get certain trademark and various protections? Well, I'll give you an example, which is not local, but, you know, the Sam Adams beer brand is produced by the Boston Brewing Company. Now, Boston Brewing Company is not distinctive. It is absolutely descriptive. And so in the moment that you're using that as a name, well, maybe you're establishing some goodwill, but by establishing a second brand, by establishing something that has identity, 
by using image, color, features, whatever, then that's really where you're going to then look for your protectability rather than the distinctiveness. Um, there's definitely a push-pull when you're thinking about brand and naming between the legal side, which says make it as protectable as possible, and the other side, which says make it as descriptive as possible so people know what you're selling. And you know the, the answer to how does Nike mean shoes is there was a lot of money in marketing and advertising that was invested. So sometimes you have to look at what's my real budget and, you know, what can I do to make something that's distinctive, but also which carries connotations of here's what I've got. I want you to come and buy it from me. When it comes to branding too, people want something that is uh, distinctive, but then also there's that struggle of, well, is it so distinctive that people don't know how to spell it? They don't know how to say it. They don't know how to Google it on the internet. Do you have those kind of meetings around a conference table where you guys are fighting over what aspect to do with naming? Yeah, I think there's a, you can look at trademarks as a, on a spectrum and on one end of the spectrum are these, you know, fanciful made up words that are difficult to pronounce and that are just a jumble of letters. And on the other end of the spectrum are words that are that describe the thing you're selling. And so usually clients drift towards the descriptive terms, as Lee mentioned, and it's I'm usually trying to push them in the other direction. And I think there is a sweet spot in the middle somewhere where you're using real words that either connote some inkling of what you're selling, but don't absolutely describe it, or that are real words that don't have anything to do with your company, but that are interesting. So an example of that, an old example is Apple for computers. I mean, Apple is a legitimate word. It's a very common word, but it has nothing, or at the time it had nothing to do with the sale of computers. So that's why it became a very, I think, strong trademark. Mm-hmm. Um, do a lot of the same rules then apply in technology where a lot of companies are developing like the same function over and over and it's it ends up being like a race to get there first? Yeah, so one of the interesting things that we've seen, we heard a little bit earlier about how it's really important to get from your employees what they are creating for the business. But technology, and um, Oregon has a little bit of this, but California has even more of it. Employees move from company to company. Things happen. The same ideas are shared around. When you're doing that, then your trademark becomes, you know, your identity if you're doing something that's the same. But Let's also look back and say that your copyright exists in all of those works and they belong to the company. So you can have bad actors who take something from one company to another. You're not protecting the function through copyright. You're protecting the actual expression. But the trademark matters a lot because now you've got you know a variety of social media platforms, variety of ride-sharing apps. Each of them might have a different feel about it, mm-hmm. might have different code about it, but it's the same function. How do you distinguish it's by color, by name, by brand? Yeah, I have a lot of clients who um, develop a product and or you know, maybe a piece of software. And they ask me, um, they want to prevent any of their competitors from basically creating a similar product. So I want to own this idea. I want to own this part of the market. And for various reasons, a lot of times that's not possible. Right. And there's nothing wrong with one of your competitors looking at your product, developing it independently, and then trying to compete with you. So a lot of times the best advice is be first to market, establish a good brand and try to, you know, try to get that market share early. So when is it too late to apply for this protection? Um, with respect to trademark, it's never too late. You just may not get the registration if someone else has already got there. With patents, uh, as Lee said, sometimes if you have you know, disclosed and publicized a particular invention, 
and allowed enough time to lapse, you may be barred from obtaining the patent protection that you think is valuable to your company. The um, other thing that I would add about when is it too late is that your goal in building a business is to get, you know, your ideas into some form where they represent value to other people. And the intellectual property is there to help you protect that. The worst thing that can happen as far as it goes is you can't protect it. Somebody else gets to use what you've created. But that doesn't stop you from continuing to sell what you've created. It just means that someone else has something very similar. That's generally correct. Yeah. The um, exception would be under patent. You can have what's called a blocking patent that can prevent you. If somebody makes a improvement Mm -hmm. on what you've done, then they would be entitled to a patent on that and they could prevent you. Okay. That's, that's, that's great stuff. So now that, you know, you should protect your ideas, how to actually do it. We'll talk about that when we come back. Are you ready to turn your idea into cash? Or are you already launched and hitting roadblocks? Join PRP each Friday at 1 p.m. for Biz 503, the talk show for startups and small businesses. Welcome back. I'm Leslie Hildula, co-hosting with Andy Gigwich on Biz 503. And today we've covered the basics of intellectual property law and why it's essential. So now let's talk a little bit about how entrepreneurs can get started protecting their property. We have some top experts in studio. Lee Gill, attorney at IMEX Law Group. Hi, Lee. Hello. And Susan Ford, principal attorney at Res Nova Law. Happy to be here. So I think we need to talk a little bit about, we mentioned the, um, what was Leslie, the group you mentioned, the, uh, the legal, uh, the, the small, small business. business legal clinic. We will give them some yeah. more plugs as we go along. So, um, yeah, I, I want to talk about them a, a little bit or, or similar resources and just find out places where, where someone might be able to go to find out, because it, as we've talked about, startups don't always have the most money to, to come to you guys per se. So Susan, what, where do you recommend, where should people start when, when they're starting to look for this? Well, um, in addition to the Small Business Legal Clinic and the Oregon Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, some of the clients have come to me through SCORE, where you're um, meeting with a retired business executive who's been through a lot of these issues and can help you avoid uh, going down the paths that didn't work well for them. SCORE is the retired uh, uh, group, or older, or... (laughs) They usually are older, Mm -hmm. but very wise. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also Mercy Corps has some great programs for small business and startups. They run weekly uh, programs, I believe. We were just there on Wednesday, gave two-hour presentation on IP and it's free. I think it was free or, or very minimal fee. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mercy oh. Corps, I think has been doing that for a little while, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd also just note that there are great resources on um, USPTO.gov where that's the patent and trademark office. That's their website. They have a ton of videos on there that you can watch for both trademarks and patents to help you understand the concepts and even to begin to prepare the applications for trademarks at least. Mm-hmm. That, that's great. Lee, do you have any insider tips for, for startups? <laughs> well, and, uh, and we work a lot with startups. You know, one of the most important things as you're, you know, beginning a new business is finding that community of other co-founders of people who've done it before. Um, ask them who they've talked to about legal issues. Many attorneys will happily sit down for half an hour, not charge you anything, or we'll give you a fixed fee on a conversation that can really point you in the right direction. Some of my clients uh, 
English as their second language or maybe even their third or fourth. And they would be more comfortable working on legal issues in their first language, which makes sense. I certainly am. Do you have any suggestions as how do you find an attorney who might speak in a language other than English and have expertise that you need? I'm not sure I know the answer, but I do know that there's a referral service through the Oregon State Bar, which allows attorneys like us to put our names in and include what specialties we have and which skills we have. And so there may be, through the Oregon State Bar referral, a way to say, I need somebody who can speak to me in Spanish, who can speak to me in Vietnamese. And lawyers are usually familiar with some uh, translation services and interpreters. So that can be something that's set up pretty easily. It's you know a small fee to have someone in the room, but that way there's a complete understanding of what's said. Mm-hmm. We've been writing a little bit about the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce too. They have like a thousand members in the Portland area. They would probably have uh, some very good suggestions along those lines, along with other types of chambers of commerce uh, that are out there. So what about uh, a lot of people are looking for programs and platforms that might help them kind of navigate the intellectual law field. So is there maybe anything online? I, I think, uh, Susan, you were mentioning some the U.S. Uh, the USPTO.gov. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Um, well, it's that's just one platform, and, and it's a very good one because you know everything is accurate. <laughs> if they're putting it out there, those are the rules that they have to abide by. Also, the U.S. Copyright Office has a very helpful website. You know, there are so many great services out there, but when I'm looking and I'm Googling on IP topics, I tend to look at articles from universities and some preeminent law firms. Um, But you have to be somewhat careful by just clicking on any old blog about IP um, because you don't know if you can trust that information or not. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is most challenging if you're just starting to get into this and you're looking at it, you say, hey, I heard I have a trademark. I know my business has a trademark. I'm going to go and I'm going to say I want to register my trademark. And There are lots of ways if you go search the resources that you'll come up with something that says, here's how you register your trademark, or I'll say, this is the fee for registering a trademark. And I think until you have that conversation of, do I need to register my trademark? Is this the right way that I can use it properly? So I concur with Susan that you have to be careful about what you read and recognize that a lot of things are really business models set up to tell you they'll do something for you, but not provide any advice about whether or not you need to do that. And and have you often fielded clients who've come in after reading a blog and had to fix their doings? (laughs) You know, not really. Um, I'm not sure legal... That'll happen. (laughs) It will happen. I did just hear LegalZoom pull down their trademark registration advice and services. Um, But who knows? It may go back up. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I was curious, is there a moment or part time in the business development when the entrepreneur says, okay, it's now it's time to call that attorney I heard about? Because entrepreneurs are so creative often, mm-hmm. right? They have lots of ideas, lots of products, lots of store ideas. It's just amazing. And at what point did they say, okay, now it's time? Is it that they've sold a certain amount or they have so many customers or way before that? When did they know it's time to make that investment in talking to a legal expert? I think that 
uh, other than being too late, there's no wrong time. But you do have to, you know, starting a business is about using all of the resources that you have and using them wisely. And if you spend a lot of money on your legal budget and you don't have enough for advertising or operations, you're not going to end up with a very successful business, even if it's a protectable business. So I think that you have to really take a hard look at what kind of business am I building? You know, how likely am I to run into the big fish that are going to cause me a lot of trouble? How protectable do I need to be? So I would look at the kind of business that you're starting and say, okay, when is the right time? But I would also say it's a lot of preventative care. And and we heard about this earlier. The more preventative care that you get, the less likely it is that you need major surgery. And major surgery is the thing that makes people afraid to call their lawyer. And I'll say I've received a lot of calls from small businesses who you know, didn't do all of the proactive work they should have. And either their works, their inventions, their ideas and slogans have been ripped off by somebody else, or they've just received a cease and desist letter. Oftentimes in that case, it's a David versus Goliath fight, <laughs> mm. which is unfortunate when you're just starting your company and you really want to put all your money towards building your brand and your products. Right, right. And in, in terms of when someone should call you, is it a one size fits all? Or if someone has like a certain kind of company, like should a tech company get a hold of you guys sooner than say like like a restaurateur or a, a food processing company? Everyone should just do it early, probably. <laughs> yeah, not necessarily. I mean, tech company sounds good because uh, they're online, they're tech, but just about any company should be thinking about what their IP assets are at the get-go and trying to put some protections in place. Would you agree with that, Lee? Yeah, I think how much attention you're going to pay to your intellectual property depends by business. If you're in the business of, let's say, distributing products or, or trucking, your brand is not going to matter quite as much as if you're in the business of selling to consumers. So you're not going to put as much attention to it. But getting it right at the outset, maybe it's a quick, small tweak to just get it right at the outset is probably something that's worth paying attention to. You've just to. spent a year and a half developing a gourmet pickle recipe and want to get it in all the new seasons. Maybe you should take a minute and make sure that that name is going to be solid for you. Absolutely. And it's much, much harder to pull those jars off of shelves than it is to print the labels with a name that you can use. So out of the wide world of legal practice, why did you pick intellectual property? What inspired you to become experts in this field? I was drawn to the challenge of the practice area. There's so many intricacies and it's sometimes kind of hard to pin down what's a copyright, what's a trademark. So it was kind of challenging for me. Um, and I, I got into IP as a result of a software dispute that I had been involved with when I was early in my career. Um, so. so that then informed everything from that Pretty point much, forward. Yeah, wow, from five years on, that's what I've been doing. And, wow, uh, and it's just wonderful to learn about creative ideas and to work with innovative people. I was on the other side of the table. I worked in software and, and for small businesses. And I kept seeing the ways that if you understood the legal tools that you had, you could build something that had lasting value. And so I said, I want to know what the lawyers know. I want to go in and I want to be part of that conversation as, as somebody who has some expertise. Um, and then I figured I'd go work inside a company and do that, but then found I, 
I love working with small businesses and having a lot of clients and Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, talking about creative people, Susan, and kind of the engineering people, Lee. So, I mean, you guys really are there in the deepest parts of, of the businesses you work with. How cool is that? How much do you get out of that professionally? I think it's really an honor um, to be invited in to think about not only their IP, but other aspects of their business and try to treat it in a more holistic manner. And it's very pleasant as opposed to just being brought in on a piece of litigation where, you know, two years later, they don't want to see you ever again, (laughs) (laughs) understandably. Um, So yeah, it's an honor, it's a privilege really to be able to see the company at its inception and as it grows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that I love most about the intellectual property side is people are creative. People are innovative and they can't help themselves. But so I'm always learning. I'm always getting to experience, hey, here's this new thing that I'm really passionate about that I want to do, that I want to build a business around, that I want to get together with other people to do. And just to be a part of that is a lot of fun. So what kind of trends are you seeing with the entrepreneurs now? How's it changed in the last five or 10 years in Portland? Well, there's certainly more um, the... Uh, the sort of software startup has, has become omnipresent and a lot of them are moving a lot quicker than they were when financing was harder to get at. But on the other hand, I think Portland has kept the maker individual, the creative class, it's kept that identity. And so businesses are clicking that are being built around those so, and also joining us on air to share his take on these questions is Chris Erickson from Tonkin Torp. Thanks for joining us again, Chris. So how would you respond to that question? What kind of trends are you seeing now? How's it changed in the last five years with the entrepreneurs that you're working with? I think with Portland having such a, um, a large number of entrepreneurs and such a booming industry in that area, I think they're getting together more. They're learning about that process more and they're becoming much more experienced um, and expertise in not only how to build a business, but also um, some of those preliminary legal aspects of it. So I think they're becoming more sophisticated on the legal issues, which makes which makes our jobs a little bit easier. You know, when we have those conversations on the front end, we don't have to do as much education and you can really get down to learning about their business and being creative in the ways to protect their intellectual property. Susan, did you have something you wanted to add? Um, No, I guess I agree with all those points. And I've just seen in the last five years a lot more issues with digital copyright infringement online. And it just seems to proliferate every day. Could you expand on that a little? What do you mean? Um, You know, we are in a world now um, and we have been for a while of Amazon and Google and online marketplaces and Internet service providers where the internet service providers have protection oftentimes against copyright infringement. But the people that are putting products out online and trying to build their businesses off of those are really struggling with all the copycat, you know, the theft that's going on out there of their digital images, whether those be on T-shirts or prints or however they end up being processed. Like literal theft, like people are just kind of scouring and looking for stuff to steal. It's so proliferate and it's just easy to do. So uh, I I guess, Lee, I just wanted like one last thing for you. Like has Portland actually, what's the intellectual property scene like in Portland? Do we have a growing burgeoning field? Like where are we compared to say Seattle or San Francisco? I think in terms of intellectual property, we've got something like critical mass. It's, It's seeping into people 
mm-hmm. that they understand that what I create is not just widgets, it's the thinking behind the widgets. Yeah. I think we match up with anyone that way. Right. And, and with Portland growing in general, where that's going to happen. So uh, thanks, Chris Erickson, Susan Ford, and Lee Gill for being on the show. Next week on Biz 503, we'll get into the hands-on parts of startups and cover the how-tos of prototyping. Thanks for joining us today for Biz 503 on PRP and have a great weekend. Support for Biz 503 comes from Imix Law Group, offering trusted legal advice to startups and small businesses. Imix for business advice.